we would understand uh, what you intended. We know that your word is not up for our man's interpretation, but men moved by your spirit spoke from you. May we understand exactly what you intended, Lord God, and may we respond as you desire. Bless this message today uh, that we would respond rightly and this series as we look into your wonderful word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the evangelical church has gone through quite a paradigm shift since the 50s, I tell you. Uh, you see the church uh, going from preaching the Word of God, uh, building up the saints, uh, the church going into the world, sharing the gospel, uh, to now the church uh, bringing the world into church, uh, desiring to take care of the people's felt needs. When I was in seminary, uh, that's what they taught us instead of the Word of God was to uh, pander, that's my understanding of what they're trying to say, to people's felt needs, the needs that they feel that they have so that they would respond and maybe they might respond to the Word later on at some time, whatever it might be. Well, that's just absolutely contradictory to the Word of God. And uh, the Word of God actually reveals what we really need You see, man in his sinful state doesn't know what he needs. And it's only until the conviction of the gospel that man realizes that he needs salvation and it's up to him to to call upon Jesus or not. It's through the scriptures that we learn and gain wisdom into salvation through Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And so with that in mind, when you think about what you truly need, we need to go to the word of God. And today we're going to go to the Word of God as we begin our series in Colossians. And we're going to see what we really need. Uh, and we're going to see this over the next two Sundays. I was going to do this message one and two uh, today. I just couldn't get it all in. We'd be here all day. And so we're just going to split it up. And we're going to look first at uh, verse one. But we're going to see what we really need as we gain some insight from Paul's greeting. Turn with me to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Very simple greeting, uh, but yet I believe it's packed with uh, important truth that we can learn, which will help us see what we really need, what we really need. Now, it behooves us when beginning a book to look at the context. I'd encourage you to be reading through in one shot, Colossians, reading it through over and over again. It's really important to gain a big picture of it first so that we don't get distracted in the small pictures. Read through it, and uh, that's what I do when I study a book. and make sure we look at the big picture first and then come down and, and put, look at the pieces and in the context of the big picture. And so here, uh, we're going to take a look at the context and background of this book. We see from uh, this verse that the Apostle Paul is the author. Uh, He is writing this letter to believers who are in Colossae. Now, in this book, he is writing while he is imprisoned. Indeed, he mentions his imprisonment in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, 18, he says, remember my imprisonment. Uh, He uh, is sharing that with those he's writing here. And this letter is one of four what we call prison epistles or letters. Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, and it was written most likely in the latter portion of 62 
A.D. Now, there are different theories as to where Paul was imprisoned when he wrote this book, but every one of these theories really falls uh, short from the traditional view, which is backed by the evidence within these four prison epistles. Indeed, in Philippians, another portion of another prison epistle here written is from the same place where Paul was, we see in chapter 4, verse uh, 22, that we have a greeting from Caesar's household. Uh, we also see uh, that we have also have an amazing statement, actually, in Philippians chapter 1. Turn there, actually. We're real close by. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, and I want to read a portion there. And, and yes, we are studying Colossians, but we're going to be looking a little bit at Philippians 2, Philippians also, uh, as we look at Colossians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that in my imprisonment, for the cost of the gospel has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear." Now, Acts 28 also reveals that Paul was under house arrest in Rome for two years, most likely between 60 and 61 to 63 A.D., sometime around that. We see various references to uh, Paul's chains. Uh, Certainly, they reveal that he was chained most likely to a Roman guard 24-7. Certainly, he uses that analogy in Ephesians chapter 6 when he speaks of the full armor, probably looking at that guard there and then God's spirit inspiring him to write concerning our full armor. And so he was under uh, house arrest here for two years in chains. But he, he had the freedom to see people at this point. This was not like his later prison. He was free to see people. Um, now, the town of Colossae was about 100 miles, was, it still is, about 100 miles east of Ephesus in ancient Ferga. This is a Rome, in the Roman territory of Asia. That's in Turkey now. Right? And it was one of the three cities in the Lycus River Valley, Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae was the smallest of those three cities. Now, although Paul had never visited, we know from Acts 19, verse 10, that when he preached in Ephesus for two years at the school of Tyrannus, that all in Asia heard the word of God. That would include those in Colossae, Heropolis, and Laodicea. Acts 19.10, and this took place for two years, that's his teaching in the school of Tyrannus, this is in Ephesus, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And indeed, quite possibly, as Paul was teaching daily in that school for two years, Epaphras came over and heard the truth and got saved. And we, but, and we do know that he did share the gospel with the Colossian church, that they received it from him. Look at verse 3 here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for, always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he, he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. 
So evidently Epaphras had heard it, and he had come back and certainly shared it with them, and they got saved, these Colossian believers. And so then, it's around 62, possibly 63 A.D., Paul's been in prison in this two-year house arrest, Acts 28, and we see Timothy is with him. Timothy is with him at this point. Now, although Paul had never personally visited Colossae, he had been informed of their spiritual state by uh, Epaphras, their spiritual father. Epaphras had been concerned of their spiritual state, we'll see, and he had journeyed some 1,600 miles. Now, that's not an easy journey. No trains, no planes. They did have boats, but 1,600 miles uh, to Rome to talk to Paul. And Paul then writes this letter in response. He writes this in response. And although Epaphras had informed them of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for the saints, which they had, yet unfortunately some threats had entered into the Colossian church. Simply put, false teachers were trying to, chapter 2, verse 4, delude them with persuasive arguments. And there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, Paul says. There are bad men and women trying to delude people in the true church with persuasive arguments, trying to delude them. Now, it's clear that these teachings, and we'll see this as we study this book, were aimed at our struggle with the flesh. You see, each and every one of us, when we get saved, we, we are so thankful we're saved, but then we realize we still have temptation. We still have this body of death. We have this flesh that isn't redeemed. And we have this battle, this good fight of faith. And if you're a true believer, you want to follow Jesus. You don't want to fail. And you feel bad when you fail. And we know we're forgiven. We confess our sins. And false teachers will come up to us with the system of how to be holy or whatever it might be. Try to delude you with persuasive arguments. And at the end of chapter 2, right before the last verse there, uh, in addressing these threats, Paul says the way that these bad guys come to you, these things they're doing, are of no value, chapter 2, 23, against fleshly indulgence. The stuff that they're telling you has no value, which gives us an idea of what they were struggling with, fleshly indulgence. False teachers were propagating a theology to deal with the believer's ongoing struggle with its fleshly indulgence. And it doesn't appear, can't say for sure, that they were outright denying Christ. It seemed like they were just adding to it, which when you add to Christ, you take away from him. You take away from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. And they were saying something to the effect, we'll see in chapter 2, to deal with your flesh, you need secret wisdom. To deal with your flesh, you need to be involved in religious ritual. Your flesh, you need the help of angels. Your flesh, you need certain rules to be holy. Deal with the flesh, you need to treat your body severely. But Paul would say these are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so what is Paul's solution to these threats? His solution is a focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, he is our redeemer, the creator before all things. He holds all things together. He is the head of the body. He is preeminent. He is fully God and fully man. He died for us to present us holy and blameless. And he is in you, the hope of glory, and you are in him. And in him, chapter 2, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't get taken captive, but trust Jesus instead. Chapters 3 and 4, set your mind on the things above. Set your mind on the things of Christ. Put off the old and put on the new. Renew your mind in him. Say no to sin. Kill it off. 
Let the word dwell richly. Clothe yourselves with Christ. Uh, be preparing your hearts with his peace. Let it rule. Be thankful, renewing your mind, being controlled by his word. Allowing his word to govern your actions. To govern all your actions. The word dwelling richly through admonishing and teaching and true worship. And then... Obey him in all your relationships, the marriage relationship, parent-child relationship, slave-master-work relationship, and relationship to outsiders, those who do not know Christ. So then this book is extremely important, and it is a very practical book, and uh, we as believers are tempted on all sides to have our eyes pulled off Jesus and the sufficiency of his word. But Colossians cuts to the core of our walk and reminds us, as we have received Christ, so walk in him. So then, we see the preeminency and sufficiency of Christ in the context of the practical realities of the Christian life. So then, again, if you aren't, if you aren't there already, turn, if you turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1, where we're going to begin to see what we need, what we really need. The world and the worldly church says, you need this. Our flesh says, you need that. Satan tempts us that you need this or that. But what we really need, as we will see, is Christ and him living his life through us. As we obey him properly in our role that he has ordained for us. As we walk in the manner in which he desires for us. Notice, first of all, we need to live and serve in the context of our gifting and calling in Christ. Each one of us has received a special gift. Each one of us is called. We're, we're certainly to love one another. We know that. And we're certainly called to serve the Lord and serve one another. We need to live in that context. And we're going to see by Paul's example and Timothy that they understood what God had called them to and they were living in that context. Paul, an apostle of, Christ, of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is a greeting. Paul and Timothy, those are the ones who are giving the greeting. To the, the saints and faithful brethren, we'll see this later on. They're all saints in Colossae, but not all are faithful brethren. Uh, but they're saints and faithful brethren in Colossae. Uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So we have a simple greeting here, which I believe we can gain some insight into some things as we prepare to get into our study of, of uh, Colossians. Notice, first of all, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that leads to the question, well, what is an apostle? What is an apostle? Seems like there's much confusion these days in uh, mostly among charismatic churches concerning the issue of apostleship. Even most charismatic churches right now loosely are united on the bad doctrine that they have concerning spiritual gifts. They are loosely united in that, in the bad, ungodly doctrines that they have concerning spiritual gifts. And even many charismatic churches sadly have apostles, male and female, even believing in those. And scripture is very clear to what an apostle is and the qualifications. And it's apparent, as we'll see in studying scripture, that they are in error in their understanding concerning apostleship. Now, we need to know it rightly. We need to understand the word rightly. We're responsible uh, to, well, we don't, we're responsible to hold the word and handle it accurately, not needing or not being ashamed. 
So then, what does the apostle, what does the scripture reveal? Now, we've gone through this in our, in our, in our lessons in women's study and in our, in our second Corinthians, we've talked about it. You know, it's not going to go as in depth as that. I'm going to share a few things from scripture. But first of all, the Greek term translated apostle here, apostolos, is derived from the word apostello. Uh, apo means from, stello means send. The word came to mean sent one. That's what it means. You know, when I can apostello my son to get me lunch from McDonald's. He's a sent one on a small a basis. He got sent for a deliberate task. I sent him. You see what I'm saying? It speaks of a sent one. That's what apostello means. It speaks of a messenger. We see that in Acts 14, 14, 2 Corinthians 8, 23. But secondly, the term is used to designate the official office of apostles, those chosen specifically by the Lord Jesus. I would call those big A apostles versus small A apostles in a sense. Scripture reveals that after the Lord Jesus prayed the entire night, by the way, a good example for us, God in human flesh praying for, for wisdom, obviously, on who to choose, says the apostles, and he prayed all night. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, and at this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. This is Luke chapter 6, Jesus personally choosing them, personally choosing them as apostles. Now, I don't have time to get into this and get into the issue in Acts chapter 1. Uh, you all know my viewpoint that they were told to wait for the Spirit of God, but they, had, they went ahead and did something that sounded biblical, but they weren't waiting. And they chose Matthias uh, by Lot. I don't think Jesus used Lot's to choose the other apostles. Uh, Matthias is a good guy, but I believe we see in Scripture that the Apostle Paul was the one chosen and timely born to replace Judas, the son of perdition, uh, the, the one who is of the devil. Now we have uh, an account, and we'll see it later on, we'll see it in a few minutes, of his conversion on Damascus Road, the Damascus Road, where the Lord Jesus personally chose the apostle Paul. Now you might remember Paul, before he was saved, Saul, he had it all. Saul was the religious guy that had it all, and he was rising up in the religious ranks, and boy, he was, he was on his way to the top, Right? Uh, but we see that although he had could put confidence in the flesh, he shares in Philippians 3, 4, uh, if anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, he's going to give us qualifications, circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever these things, these things, Whatever things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he counts them all as rubbish, as rubbish. The Apostle Paul was a zealous, violent aggressor on his way to persecute and kill Christians, the way, by the way, and he was advancing beyond his contemporaries, but something happened. And that same thing, not in the same way, has happened to each and every one of us, and we got saved. Not in the same way, I'm saying, but he got saved. He got saved. Listen to the Apostle Paul's account. You can turn there to Acts 26, and he is before Felix. He is giving his testimony. 
Now, I'm not saying we got saved as apostles. I'm saying he got saved. But he got saved unto a specific calling, as we have also, by the way, as we have also. Acts 26, verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received the authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. He did that with Stephen, didn't he, right? I believe he did. Uh, and as I punished them often in all, all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And he says here, while thus engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest, at midday, okay, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who art thou, Lord? By the way, Saul didn't know the Lord. He didn't know Jesus. Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord answered, said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. The Apostle Paul was saved personally by Jesus. Jesus saved him there, right? And he was called at this point, and we have his testimony. Now, uh, we need to recognize that apostles were personally chosen, as we saw in Luke. And having, and even the apostle Paul would say, uh, have I not seen the Lord? Not, have I been chosen by lot, but have I not seen the Lord? First uh, Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Speaking of the resurrected Lord, that was one of the uh, requirements. We also see that scripture reveals that his apostleship and their apostleship was authenticated by signs and wonders and miracles. Second Corinthians chapter 2, 12, verse 12, and I'll read this for you. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles, and miracles. Paul also reveals in 1 Corinthians that there is an order in which God has given certain offices to the church. And God has appointed, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, to the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And the reality is, as we see in Ephesians, that he gave some as apostles, Ephesians 4.11, gifts. He gave some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. But don't miss this. There were foundational gifts. 
And the apostleship was a foundational gift to which was being built upon later. It was primary. Apostles and prophets were primary. They were bringing forth the word of God, and they laid the foundation with the completed word of God once for all delivered to the saints, and teachers are building upon that with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. So then you are no longer, verse 19, strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been, that's an aorist tense, already happened, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It is Christ who brought forth the word and, through, and then through his apostles and prophets, his word, and we are built up upon that foundation when you build a building, you don't build a foundation, and then you build more foundations and more foundations and more foundations. A foundation is laid, and then the building is built upon that foundation. And we see clearly that which he builds us with, and that foundation is the word of Christ. It's the truth of Christ through his word. You see, we are brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ through the gospel, the word of truth. James 1, verse Peter 1. And we grow in the spirit of salvation, 1 Peter 2, 2. And the word does its work in us who believe, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. Therefore, Christ being the cornerstone, uh, laid the foundation of the church, giving his word by the means of the apostles and prophets. And now this foundation has been set. It has been laid already, completed action, aorist tense. And we are now being built upon Christ through his completed, revealed word by pastors and teachers. We're being equipped for the work of service having been built upon the foundation, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Indeed, Peter would share concerning prophets that, hey, there was no expectation of prophets in the future. He says in First Peter chapter, or Second Peter chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Prophets in the past, false teachers in the future, as you see here. Now, certainly we have false prophets now. There's no doubt about that except for a time in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, in which God's plan goes back to Israel for the 70th week, or, yes, 70th week, uh, for that seven-year tribulation. Uh, we, we have uh, these two witnesses who will prophesy for 1260 days. Besides that, there are no apostles and prophets. God's revealed truth is done. The sound foundation is laid. And folks, there are no more apostles of the Lamb. If you look in Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, it says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, these are the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I believe the apostle Paul being that twelfth. How many were there? How many true apostles? 11, 16, 32, 10. There's twelve. There's twelve. And folks, if anyone claims to be a big A apostle now, and I need to be careful, someone says, I'm an apostle, say, what do you mean by that? You know, don't just jump on it and say, you're a false apostle. You know, maybe they just mean, the Lord has sent me, I'm not a big A, I don't see myself that way, and they just, it's a word thing. You know, you've got to be careful what, what you, and they just need to be instructed and, and maybe encouraged to see things maybe in a way that wouldn't be uh, misunderstood. Uh, but here, if someone claims to be an apostle, of Jesus Christ, as we see in Scripture, having apostolic authority, they would be what Scripture calls false apostles, because there are only 12, and the foundation is laid. 
foundation has been laid. So then apostles were personally chosen by Christ. They saw the risen Lord. They laid the foundation declaring his word as he revealed it to them, as we see. So back in our passage, what else can we observe about Paul's apostleship? Paul, an apostle, back in Colossians 1, of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is a sent one of Jesus. He was Christ's apostle. He was apostle of Jesus Christ. The term Jesus is our the son of God's human name. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The word Jesus means Yahweh saves. The I am saves. And yes, the I am took on human flesh, and there's salvation. No other name than Jesus Christ. In Jesus, and the term Christ speaks of the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of kings and Lord of lords who would reign forever, but yet would need to suffer for the glories to follow. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's Jesus Christ's apostle. He was called and sent by Christ to do his will. Paul clearly understand, understood whose apostle he was. He wasn't an apostle of the seventh sect of the 13th division of the seventh church. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He knew who sent him. And we need to remember that too, who has called us unto uh, a right relationship with him, the Lord. We see this. And so Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was Christ's apostle. And by the way, he understood, because he shares it in Scripture in spite of the church, that Jesus is the head of the church. You see, so many people think they're the head of the church. They want to do church their way. What authority do you have to do church anyway different than what God says in his word? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We see this in scripture. Very clearly, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. First, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21. He was a far, raised far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, and every name that was named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, one to come. And he has put all things into subjection under his feet, speaking of Lord Jesus. And he has given him as head over all things to the church, speaking of Jesus, which is, is his body, the fullness of all, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's the head of the church. To give the, 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 the illustration of a body. A body doesn't go anywhere without a head. The head directs the body. And when a body is sick, not listening to the head through disease or whatever it might be, it is obvious. We have physical examples of poor people who have maybe some type of disease and they're, they're not functioning. The head is not getting the message to the body, or the body is not listening in a sense. It's not listening. So here, here's the head of all things. We know Ephesians chapter 5 for each husband is the head of the wife, verse 23, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And in Colossians, we'll get to this, uh, when we, Lord willing, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. He was Christ's apostle. He was Jesus Christ's apostle. That's who he was sent by. That was who he was obeying. That was his master. He was a bond slave of Jesus Christ. We said it in other passages. Jesus has called him to apostleship, and he was bound to do his will by his grace and strength. 
And I know there are no more apostles, yet I believe we can learn a great principle here. We all must, we all, we all serve Jesus Christ. We all serve him. And the scriptures reveal, as I've mentioned, Jesus is the head of the church, not us. We don't get to decide how we serve him. We all must submit to him and obey his commands concerning his church revealed in his word. Paul was Christ's apostle, totally submitted to the head of the church. And notice, he explains also something else about this. Back in our passage, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. By the will of God. It's interesting to note that in five other books, the introduction of those books, Paul declares himself by the Holy Spirit, an apostle of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, by the will of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 1, Ephesians 1, 1, Titus 1, 1, 2 Timothy 1, 1, and in our passage, five other books, by the will of God. Now, when something is repeated five times, we might want to understand why. So here we see he is an apostle of Christ by the will of God. You say, why is that so important? Well, it's extremely important because Paul was not an apostle because of his own doing. He was not an apostle because of his own doing. This is important. Paul did not appoint himself as an apostle. He did not decide to get apostolic training from the local seminary. Neither did he take a spiritual gifts test to determine that he was an apostle. He was an apostle by the will of God. By the will of God. Clearly, Scripture reveals this. I'll share a few passages. You can turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1. You see, if you think you are in some way have turned yourself to that direction, then you're going to be prideful about that. If you're the one that decided you're a pastor, um, then you're going to be a little prideful about that, unless if God called you as a pastor, teacher, to preach, and teacher, whatever it might be. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Pretty straightforward. Man didn't send him, Jesus did. He was a sent one from Jesus. Go down a little farther to verse 13 in Galatians. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. Now, it's interesting. Paul says, forgetting what lies beyond, behind, I press forward. Well, he does mention what lies behind, but he mentions it in the right context. He doesn't mention it in pity and self-focus. He mentions it to show what Christ did for him. You see? He says here, says here, and I was advancing to Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. The Lord did it. The Lord appointed him. It was by the will of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read this for you. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Called as an apostle was by the will of God. One pastor writes, Paul didn't take a career test to see if he's a good fit, to see if he'd make a good apostle. God made an apostle purely by his sovereign choice. 
And there he was, marching on to Damascus to kill Christians. And before you know it, he's preaching Christ. God turned him into an apostle. God sent Ananias to get, the good Ananias, by the way, to give him his marching orders. You're a chosen instrument to bear Christ's name before the Gentiles, king of the Jews. And that's exactly what Paul spent the rest of his days doing. Chosen instrument. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul was appointed by the will of God as an apostle. And by the way, God has appointed you in some spiritual sense as some gifting by his will, whether it's a servant, uh, whether gifting it is, whatever it might be, whether it's one who speaks his word. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Remember that, by the way. That's not from God. That's from your flesh or from Satan or from the world but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me, Paul speaking to Timothy, in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace in which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen, right? For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. The Lord Jesus chose him it was by the will or and by the will of God that he was and an apostle. If we look at Paul's life in the scriptures from the day he was saved, everything revolved around Christ and what God had called him to do. When we get saved, God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He begins that process of sanctifying us. We've got to realize that's part of his plan. And he also gifts us to serve him. And Paul understood how so. How so. You may not understand how so we can go through spiritual gifts, but first of all, get in the word and see what they are. And secondly, just be around the body of Christ, and God will give you a natural inclination to start acting in the context of the gifting that he's given you. So the Apostle Paul... By his grace, he would say even in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that by the grace of God, he is what he is. He is what he is. He was uh, uh, not fit to be called an apostle. He was the least of the apostles, but he was what he was by the grace of God. You see, each of us have received a special gift. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10. As each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God over serves. Let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Very clearly, um, the Apostle Paul knew what he was called to do. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Do you know what God has called you to do? Do you know what he's gifted you to do? Are you living in context of how he's gifted you? Do you desire to know what God has called you to do? You know, if you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. If you go to the Lord, Lord, I want to serve in the way you've gifted me. Please reveal that to me. He's going to answer that prayer. Just don't let sin get in the way because you won't hear the answer, right? Follow the Lord. Walk with him. He's going to answer that prayer. He's going to show you through his word the context of his people. Paul fully understood his gifting and calling. Well, back in our passage, look at the greeting here. 
We can learn from that, right? We can learn. What do we need? We need to understand what God has called us for, right? We need to understand that, right? Very helpful. Um, secondly, we need to understand and look at the example of Timothy, of how that was flushed out in real life. How does it look in real life when we know what we're supposed to be doing? What does it look like when we're serving Christ? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Here we see it is not just Paul greeting the Colossians, but we see it as Paul and Timothy, he says, our brother. Now we need to be careful not to ascribe the writing of this epistle or letter to Timothy. Indeed, later on, Paul will use the first person, and in chapter 4, verse 16, he calls it my letter. He doesn't say Timothy and my letter. He says my letter. And he also says in verse 18 of chapter 4, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Simply, Timothy's name was added along with Paul's to send his greetings to these Colossian believers. Now, with this in mind, before we continue, I want to share a little bit about Timothy for the rest of our time together, and I believe it will be helpful for us in understanding what we really need, what we really need. You see, Scripture does give us a lot of information about Timothy, and he is mentioned here, and so it would behoove us to understand what the Word of God says about Timothy. Well, we know Scripture reveals that he was a native of either Lystra or Derby. These were little towns in the province of Galatia. His mother was a Jew by the name of Eunice, his grandmother Lois. His father was a Greek. Having not been circumcised until he journeyed with Paul was an indication probably that he was educated in Greek culture, Acts 16. We don't know exactly when he was saved, but we know from 2 Timothy chapter 3 that he was educated informally by his mother and grandmother from whom he learned the truth concerning salvation from the scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We know that by the time he met Paul in Acts 16, he had already become a disciple and was such a proven young man that Paul wanted him to go with him. The Apostle Paul uh, understood who was committed to Christ. There were times where Paul broke off from people who weren't faithfully following Christ. We said with John Mark. Now he got restored, praise the Lord. But Timothy, Paul wanted him to go with him. He was a faithful young man. Now, I don't think we really understand how extensively Timothy was a part of the Apostle Paul's life. Paul speaks of him in Scripture as his son in the Lord, his son in the faith, his true child, his co-worker, fellow servant, fellow slave, as a brother, and here our brother. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. He's saying he's not just my brother, he is our brother, Colossian believers. The term brother speaks of being literally from the same womb. That makes sense, right? And indeed, not of all of us have brothers and sisters, but we understand, right? We understand we come from the same physical family. We understand that, right, of brothers and sisters. But it speaks of origin. But here it doesn't speak of physical origin. It speaks of spiritual origin. You see, you are either in the family of Satan, you're in Satan's domain, because all of us are initially in that domain, He's our spiritual father. But when we get saved, we are delivered from the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his beloved son. We become children of God and brothers and sisters of one another in a family, in the family of God. See how great a love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. First John chapter 3. 
when we were born again through the living and abiding word of God, we became children of God. And so Paul is saying he's of the same origin. He's our brother. He's our brother. He's a believer. He's in the family. He's our brother in Christ. You know, it's really important that when we think of this, uh, this tremendous reality of one another, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are members of one body. Not that our physical families are not important. We honor them. We love them. But we as true believers, as evidenced by obedience to the Lord, have a greater family relationship. When the Lord Jesus said, hey, you've left families and houses and this, I'll give you greater, even in this, this life and the life to come, part of that is the family he gives us in Christ. Take Luke chapter 8, verse 20, and I'll read this to you. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. Jesus' mother and brothers are waiting out there, wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. That's my mothers and brothers. That's my real family. That's my my, my real family here. That's my mother and brother. We have entered into a higher relationship of brothers and sisters in Christ. And how blessed it is when your family is too. Praise the Lord for that. But we are in a higher relationship. Paul calls him our brother. And again, I, I don't think we know how extensive Timothy was in Paul's life, uh, how, how close they were. He was associated with Paul in the writing of some of his epistles, such as First and Second Thessalonians, Second Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians. And when Paul wrote to the Romans, Timothy was there as well. He was with Paul in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, in Corinth, in Ephesus, and he is here with him in Rome as he writes this letter. He was such proven worth... Uh, because he was willing to do anything Paul wanted him to do in the Lord. We'll turn, as we finish up here, turn to Philippians chapter 2. I want to share this. This is another prison epistle written in the same time period, but it's to the Philippian church. But we gain insight into the Timothy of the same time. The exact Timothy, he says, is saying his greetings. We gain insight. The same time period. The same time period. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says, but I hope to, in the Lord Jesus, and there you go, it's the Lord's choice, to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. I hope to send Timothy. And notice what he says. He begins to explain, and this gives us great insight into this man. For I have no one else of kindred, or literally same-souled, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's quite a statement. Timothy was same-souled with Paul. In other words, he, was, he thought like Paul. He, he acted like Paul. He reacted like Paul. His desires were like those of Paul's. And folks, uh, we know from Scripture, Paul thought, acted, and reacted like Christ. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. He desired that the will of God would be done. And what ways were they, the same-minded, same-souled, biblically speaking, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. When it comes down to their ways, we're about the word, by the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, 
who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. It has to do with the truth of God functioning in the person of Paul, as we see here. And Timothy was same-souled. Same-souled. Isn't it wonderful when you come along with someone who's same-souled? The Word of God is working in their hearts, and there's just a unity in that. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful thing. Paul and Timothy were completely submitted to Christ and his will as revealed in the scriptures. They had renewed minds submitted to the word and they were controlled by the spirit. They were same souled. Now notice there's an incredibly revealing statement after this. Verse 20 of Philippians 2. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Whoa. This is Paul in Rome. He's got Timothy with him. He's going to send him to the Philippians. He says, I have no one else, same-souled, like-minded, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The term genuinely means, uh, actually it's the word speaking of lawfully born from wedlock, legitimate birth. speaks of genuineness. I got no real deal guys, no genuine people who would genuinely be concerned with your welfare. Timothy was the genuine article. Isn't that great? His behavior in Christ, as we will see, proved him to be legitimate legitimate a lot of people talk about christ a lot of people say a lot of stuff about jesus but it is your behavior that will prove if you really are the real deal or not it'll eventually show it'll eventually show paul and timothy emulated the chief shepherd they had concern for the sheep john 10 jesus says in verse 11 i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep he was a hireling and not a shepherd as who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Paul and Timothy were like Christ. They were concerned for the sheep. They were concerned for the sheep. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul would send, you can read this on your own, he would send Timothy to Thessalonica to see how they were doing in the faith. They were concerned that Satan would have tempted them. They got a good report back. So don't now at this point he says, I'm going to send Timothy shortly. You think, okay, he's going to send Timothy. We need to not underlook or overlook, not underlook, overlook the significance of what Paul was asking Timothy to do to leave Rome and to go to Philippi to check in. That is not an easy journey. We know from Paul getting to Rome it wasn't easy. Shipwrecks and all kinds of stuff. It's not an easy journey. He was asking him to do something that was an incredible sacrifice. It was an arduous task in the Lord. Paul was not simply asking Timothy to fill in on Sunday or to do the nursery or to do something. I mean, nothing wrong with that. Praise the Lord, do that. You know, nothing's insignificant, but this was an arduous task. And notice what he says. Verse 24, I have no one else of kindred spirit of same soul who will generally be concerned for your welfare. Wow. There's no one else who genuinely will sacrifice for the benefit of these believers, for their concern for them. Verse 21, for they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. That's a pretty telling statement. They're all continually seeking after their own things, literally. This is strong. 
Now, does this mean everybody ministering to him in the Roman church, everyone Paul had had led in Caesar's household? All means all here. He's in Rome. But we need to remember Epaphroditus, in whom we'll talk about next time, uh, talk about him, he talks about him here in, in, in Philippians, uh, he has been sent. Luke and Anastarchus are not there. And so everyone's left except for Paul and Timothy, but there were some double-minded believers around there, true believers, but not concerned. How sad. So then we have the tragedy that's in the church these days among believers, the setting of one's desires over those of Christ. And how many times have I seen it over the years where you ask someone to do something and it's too difficult for them? Their life is just too important. Their stuff is too important. Just really sad. Uh, really sad. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. How about you and those who will listen to this? Would this be said about you? Are you one who seeks after the things of Christ or the things of your own life and your own interest? Unfortunately, there was no one of wholehearted concern. But notice what it shares about this. It shares in contrast that Timothy was one who sought after the things of Christ Jesus. He did seek after them. We have two options as believers, the, our own interest or the interest of Christ. That's it. That's our options. And there's no way to stay focused on the interest of Christ if we're not continually feeding on the truth of the word of God and his will through the word. The word prompts us to love him, to obey him, to serve him, to fellowship with him. The word prompts us to obey our leaders, to love the brethren, to serve the brethren, to fellowship with them. The word reveals the Lord's desire, the interests of Christ. It makes me think of Philippians 2. We see where to have this mind which was in Christ Jesus. This mind. He, he set aside his prerogative as God and took on human flesh, all, all still being fully God. And he took on human flesh and he obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. Timothy and Paul were like that. They had the mind of Christ. So then we see that Timothy was single-minded, focused on Christ. Well, what else do we see? Look at verse 22. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me for the first of the gospel like a child serving his father. Proven worth speaks of the process of testing to prove something genuine. Something proven genuine by testing. It's proven worth. You know his proven worth. He had demonstrated spiritual worth or demonstrated character. You know that. You know that. You know of his proven worth. You know, I would just ask you, does your life prove your worth in Christ as a servant of Christ? Has that been demonstrated that others can see? Have you passed or failed the test? Are you faithful or unreliable? Passage that is convicting, Colossians, or 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Let a man regard us as servants of Christ in this manner, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. It's required of me to study and prepare and preach his word in season and out of season. That's, and to, to rely on him and not myself. To abide in Christ. It's required. It's required of you in the way he has gifted. It's required of you in your relationships to obey the Lord as he has revealed in his word. 
Are you faithful and reliable? And then lastly, notice Timothy was submissive. That's where we all get into temptation and trouble. So many rebels in the church. So many people that are not wanting to submit to the Lord. But you know it's proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. You know it's proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. It was manifest in how he served Paul in the furtherance of the gospel. The term said he literally slaved with Paul, duleo, how he slaved with me. Back in Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, doulos. And he says he did so, obeying the Lord here, serving the Lord. Timothy was like a child serving his father. Timothy was submissive. The implication is submissiveness and obedience. When a child serves a parent, they're submitting and they're obeying. And this was to Paul. This was to those who were spiritually in authority over them, who were following Christ. Timothy was willingly pliable. Okay, he's going to go Rome to Philippi. He went Rome to Thessalonica. He's going where Paul wants him to go. Where he wants, to, wants him to go. It wasn't Rome to Thessalonica, but on to Thessalonica. Brothers and sisters, if you are seeking the interests of Christ, then you will gladly submit to the authority God has placed in your life. If it's godly authority, you gladly submit. Timothy was faithful, proven worth, and he was submissive. So what do we really need? We need to understand how God has called us so that we can serve him day in and day out until he comes. And we need to serve him with a heart like Timothy. A heart that is uh, focused on the things of Christ. Submitting to the Lord. Uh, demonstrated, proven, serving for the glory of Christ. How do you stack up? Are you focused on the things of Christ? How do you stack up? Do you know how God's called you to serve him? Well, start in the things that you know for sure. Serve in your marriage. Serve at work. Serve as you go into the world, obeying the Lord towards outsiders, serve him. Start on the things that you know for sure. And then let the Lord open your heart and mind to the specifics in the body of Christ. Love. Seek to figure out how to love. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Serve one another. Serve in the context of how he has gifted you. Take a closer look at Paul and Timothy from the word. Make a decision by the power of the Spirit to emulate them and walk as they follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book. I thank you for the encouragement in your servants, Paul and Timothy. Lord, help us to know exactly how you've gifted us, that we would walk in that context. Help us to be those who are faithful, proven, submissive, obedient servants, Lord God, about your interests and not ours. Lord, help us discern when our interests are getting in the way. Help us yield those over, not our will, Lord, but your will be done. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and help us to have his mind to think like Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.